Hello, you are listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I am history graduate student Kayla Campana, and I will be your host for this week's episode of Knight's History Cast. The Department of History's Holly Baker sat down with Dr. David Head, historian, author, and lecturer of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Dr. Head gave a talk at the 2017 Research Colloquium titled Alexander Hamilton and the Newburgh Conspiracy, Military Politics at the Anxious End of the American Revolution. In the interview with Holly, Dr. Head discusses conspiracy thinking in the Newburgh Affair. Let's listen to their conversation. Hello, I am Holly Baker with the UCF History Department, and today I'm with Dr. David Head, historian, author, and lecturer of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Dr. Head will give a lecture this evening at the 2017 Research Colloquium titled Alexander Hamilton and the Newburgh Conspiracy, Military Politics at the Anxious End of the American Revolution. Welcome and thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Today I would like to ask you some questions based on your lecture. Uh, So first, please take us back to 1783 and set the stage and tell us what was the Newburgh Conspiracy? Sure. So the Newburgh Conspiracy uh, is an event at the end of the American Revolution. And it takes place during this kind of strange period when the war is still on. There's not an official peace treaty, but there are no major campaigns. So the last major battle uh, of the American Revolution is at Yorktown. The Americans are victorious. That's October of 1781. And the official peace treaty, the news doesn't arrive in the United States until November of 1783. So you have this two-year period where the war is still technically on, but there's not fighting, there's an army, but they're not really doing much. So kind of in this in-between period. Uh, The Newburgh Conspiracy was an event in March of 1783 in which uh, Continental Army officers who were encamped with the main army on the Hudson River near Newburgh, New York, um, they may have collaborated in some form with politicians in Philadelphia, where the Continental Congress was meeting, to collaborate together and possibly to use their influence to pressure Congress and the states in some fashion into approving uh, new taxes that would be used to pay the debts owed to the army and to other creditors, uh, as well as ultimately strengthening the central government. Now, you'll notice I kind of hedged there a little bit. That's kind of the traditional story of the Newburgh conspiracy. It's still mysterious exactly who did what, what was planned. Uh, it's not clear exactly. And that's part of in my project has been to try and figure out as much as possible what really happened. Was it a real conspiracy or not? What really happened? Um, because if it is a conspiracy, that's really disturbing because that would mean at the very beginning of the United States, there was some sort of resistance to civilian rule by the military, a coup possibly, a mutiny at the very least. So a lot of bad things could have happened. Um, so that's the Newburgh conspiracy. It is put down uh, by General Washington and he gives this, this famous performance where he meets with the officers and he reads an address Something he really didn't do. It's one of the, the few cases where he addressed his officers assembled all together at the end of the war. So, so this is not something that's very uh, typical for him. And here is this address criticizing uh, any sentiment that would resist civilian rule. And at the end of the address, he, t- he goes to take out a letter from one of the congressmen. That letter is assuring Washington that Congress is doing everything possible to meet the Army's needs. 
And the story goes that he took out this letter and he couldn't read it, so he put on his glasses. And he had gotten glasses for the first time only a month or two before. And supposedly he excused himself and said, I've, I've not only grown uh, gray, but also blind in your service. Other versions say the service of our country, the service of my country. A little, little different, the memory of what exactly he said. And supposedly this brought the men to tears. Uh, and so that was kind of the thing that broke the ice, broke any resistance that was remaining. And that's kind of a really famous um, episode, Washington bringing his men to tears. And I tell that story, of course, because uh, it's a wonderful little story, but also the larger context of what was going on at the end of the war, the significance of this event, and what exactly Washington was doing when he gave this really impassioned speech. Did Alexander Hamilton have a role in the Newburgh conspiracy? So Hamilton is a delegate to Congress from the state of New York. He had become a uh, representative from New York in November of 1782. So he's not there for very long as a congressman when this is happening. Throughout most of the war, uh, Hamilton had been an aide to General Washington, part of uh, Washington's family, military families, they, they called it. The two men had a falling out in um, the spring of, of uh, 1781, I believe it was. They had this falling out and they went their separate ways. Hadn't really talked uh, since that, that time. Hamilton uh, is part of this group of uh, nationalist politicians, men who the term they would use was think continentally, so not really attached to any particular state, but are more interested in doing what's, what's right for the country as a whole. And what they think is right for the country as a whole is a more powerful central government, especially a central government with the ability to tax and therefore pay its debts, strengthen its credit, all those kinds of things. So Hamilton's part of this group, along with James Madison, seems to be thinking similarly. The superintendent of finance, a man named Robert Morris, and his assistant, Governor Morris. And they have the same last name, but they're not related. Uh, they think very closely together and they work together. They are all sort of pushing together arguing in favor of a stronger central government with more taxes. So that's Hamilton's background and sort of institutional involvement in what's going on. Um, he plays a role in writing Washington's several letters, and they kind of resume their correspondence at this critical juncture. There's a really important letter that Hamilton writes to Washington in February of 1783. And it's really mysterious because it's incredibly indirect. He never comes out and quite says what, he, what, if anything, he wants Washington to do. And as a result, the letter's been interpreted in a variety of ways of Hamilton sort of perhaps sounding out Washington to see if he would be involved in resisting Congress, if Hamilton is maybe coaching Washington on what to do in the event that their conspiracy starts to have like an overt act come to be reality. Uh, there's a more complicated argument from the 1970s that, that says that Hamilton was on the, Hamilton, the Morrises were on the one hand encouraging officers to stir up trouble, especially the general Horatio Gates, to perhaps make some statement that they would resist Congress and not leave the field if the peace treaty came, while at the same time tipping off Washington to put down any kind of rebellion. Because supposedly in this argument, the nationalists in Congress, they wanted trouble to scare other congressmen, but they didn't actually want a coup or anything like that. So they wanted, on the one hand, somebody to cause trouble, and on the other hand, Washington to stop it before it got too far. And that's what the interpretation of this letter is maybe about. It's really hard because, he, again, he won't come out and say it. it, it now, 
is it indirect because it's too explosive, the content of what he's saying, in order you don't really want to come out and say, will you join our conspiracy? The other thing is that you know people wrote like that in the 18th century, especially politicians. You always, as a politician, had to be aware that someone could steal your mail. Now, this is, uh, this, these letters are carried by private couriers, so that's not, that's not a concern so much. But also, you got to be careful if you say the wrong thing about the wrong person and the letter is shown to somebody else that, that you could end up in an affair of honor which is a nice way of saying a duel, eventually. And, and Hamilton was involved in, in numerous duels. Uh, even before, Well, I guess the fatal one would be the last one he was involved in, but many before that. So it's hard to say exactly. Now, part of what I found that's new, and I think new and different, that, that other scholars haven't found previously, is some indication about what exactly Hamilton was talking about and what role he was asking Washington to play. That comes from a letter I found, um, not from Hamilton, but from the Baron von Steuben. He was the inspector general of the army, so in charge of discipline and training. And he was in Philadelphia, and he was writing to Henry Knox. Henry Knox is a general. He was the commander at West Point, near Newburgh, also on the Hudson River in New York. And von Steuben, he tells Knox that there's a plan being discussed informally in Philadelphia that would have the army ask Congress for permission not to disband should a peace treaty be announced. Now, disbanding the army is kind of like the hard deadline for all of the monetary and uh, economic problems to be resolved. The soldiers are afraid that once they leave the field, they'll be forgotten about because you know, they're gone their separate ways to their separate states. That'll be the end of it if they don't stick together. However, if the army stays in the field after peace, then that's really dangerous in the thinking of the time. In the 18th century, one of the surest signs of tyranny is that you have a standing army in peacetime. Okay, so there's no good solution to this. Either you become a standing army in peacetime and scare everybody that you're going to be foisting tyranny upon them, or the army leaves and they never get paid. So the plan is to kind of split the difference between the two. Uh, the actual letter calls it an expedient, which is kind of a nice way of putting it. It would be to ask permission to stay. So the idea being that they would stay, but they would kind of reinforce the idea that Congress was still in charge. So it would be Congress directing them not to disband. The letter goes on ultimately to say this letter has to come from the commander-in-chief. And they don't say Washington's name, but that, that's who it is. It has to come from Washington himself, because he's the only one with the prestige, the reputation for virtue that could be trusted, that they're not going to institute tyranny by staying in the field, but it's just the letter says to, to, to give Congress time to have, you know, to find the funds that are necessary. I, that's floating around as a proposal at about the same time that Hamilton is writing to Washington. So I think that that's what Hamilton is hinting at, trying to find out if Washington will be willing to write some kind of letter under his name on behalf of the army to uh, Congress. So I think that changes the nature of that letter, how we interpret it, as well as what's going to happen later in uh, con uh, the whatever connection there is between Congress and the officers and the crisis that develops. Why do historians allege that Hamilton had a role in the conspiracy in the first place? Part of it, I think, is Hamilton's personality. Um, he's a hardball politician, and he plays rough, and there's no mistaking that. He gets a rep reputation as a Machiavellian character. The bio Hamilton biographer, Ron Chernow, uh, he calls this episode, the letter I was just talking about, as Hamilton as, at his most devious, trying to play Washington to manipulate him into doing what, what he wants. That's the kind of thing Hamilton certainly could do. Uh, so it's not like you say, oh, Hamilton would never do that. It sounds exactly like the kind of thing Hamilton would do on other occasions. 
so that's part of it. That's kind of Hamilton has this kind of devious reputation. The nature of the letter that is so indirect and you can't quite tell what in the world they're talking about. It just sounds like something's off here. Uh, later on, Hamilton writes to Washington. Hamilton knows that there's trouble has, has cropped up in camp, that there's been some letters stirring up the officers to meet, but he doesn't know how far it's gone. Okay? And he writes a letter to Washington saying, good can come out of this if force is not used. So in other words, if the army doesn't actually mutiny, we can use this to our advantage. You know, I won't be sorry if uh, something good comes out of this in the end. So kind of defiant. Hamilton telling Washington that, of course, I don't want a mutiny, but whatever the one step below a mutiny is, that would be okay. So, yeah, that's kind of Hamilton being kind of devious in there. So it's, I think it's easy to, to, from what's known about Hamilton, about what he's actually written, kind of bragging about, that he's, that he's up to something, and then to go to this next step that he was act- actively manipulating people to possibly use the army to attack civilian rule. That's another step that for some, I've seen that as, as kind of a natural progression. Is there a lesson to be learned from the Newburgh conspiracy? So what I'm finding is, what I'm trying to argue and establish is that, I think conspiracy is the wrong word. I'm trying to call this the Newburgh affair. Right? So Because you can call it the Newburgh conspiracy, that prejudges the major question of what it is I'm trying to research. Was it a conspiracy or not? I think certainly this is this is bare-knuckle hardball politics. I mean, that's, that's what they're involved in. But I don't think that Hamilton is actively pulling the strings from behind the scenes. Hamilton or, or other candidates who are said to play that role uh, with Hamilton or on their own, uh, I don't think that there's that kind of conspiracy. Certainly not the version of trying to encourage a mutiny or coup that Washington would then put down to scare everybody to death. I think what's really going on is that uh, the politicians in Philadelphia and some members of the, the officers in Newburgh, New York, they want to make a stronger statement. One of the most important lessons to learn is to be suspicious of conspiracy thinking. Um, one of the major arguments that I'm trying to make in, in my book is that the Newburgh conspiracy wasn't really a conspiracy. If by conspiracy you mean a plan that was hatched in Philadelphia in which uh, Hamilton and the Morrises manipulated people from behind the scenes, I don't think that's what was going on. They wanted the army to be involved in some way in standing with other creditors to make the, the maximum argument they could about why new taxes were, were necessary, why new taxes were needed. So I think that's what was going on. Uh, the letters that I've talked about previously, talking about a plan for uh, Congress to give permission for the army to stay in the field. Okay, that's a little different than the army threatening to disband on their own authority. Okay, so I think this is a statement against conspiracy thinking. Now, 18th century people loved conspiracy thinking. They believed that nothing happened by accident. Partly that's part of their Christian background, or that God's in control of everything, but also it's an enlightenment idea also, that the, the um, analogy I like to use was the universe was a great machine. Okay, and the machine has all its parts, it works. It doesn't, things just don't happen randomly, or at least they're not supposed to. So they thought that everything happened for a reason. You could trace any kind of outcome to some sort of cause that was definitely intended. That was one of the major problems that caused the breakdown in the relationship between Britain and the colonies. The suspicion on both sides that nothing was happening by accident, that each had the worst motives possible. So that has to be kept in mind when analyzing these 18th century people, that they believe there could be a conspiracy. Now, we're not 18th century people, so we don't have any obligation to follow them in their conspiracy thinking. 
And that's what I really want to try and do is to sketch out the whole circumstances and to emphasize the people are doing things, making decisions on imperfect um, information. They have to make quickly. They have emotions. They get passionate about things. They don't have good information. They make decisions anyway. And that has a lot to do with how events turn out. Also, they are institutional factors. I mean, Congress just moves slowly because they're not built for efficiency in, in this period or probably in any period. And that's not because they want to harm the army. It's just the way the institution works. Okay, so I'm trying to emphasize that. And that's hard um, for people to get a grasp on because the idea that our lives are somewhat random, there's a, a, an element of chance, of luck that's involved. That's hard to come to grips with that, you know, bad things can happen to good people and no one's really at fault, right? That's just a basic question of, of human life that's hard to get at. So that's something that I want to try and grapple with and encourage people to think about. A second uh, major contribution I, I want to make with the project is to emphasize the kind of ambivalent or anxious end to the American Revolution. So looking back, we see the American Revolution is a great victory. Uh, glor the glorious cause is sometimes called, and, and, and that's true. Um, but for the people living through it, especially the soldiers who are being demobilized, there was a real fear that this was all for nothing. They weren't going to be paid. It's not that they were greedy, it's that they were going to go home and their lives were ruined. Their families were hungry. I mean, every, there's no way to put their lives back together, especially if they've been wounded or something and what's, what's going to happen to them. So there's a great ambivalence about what the revolution was actually for. And that's something you see also in the congressmen. I mean, if the government that comes out of this is too weak and it collapses, what was all the sacrifice for? If the country ends up being not very strong, it's just going to be conquered by a European country. It's only a matter of time. So kind of emphasizing the inconclusive or the ambivalent end to the American Revolution is something that I'm trying to do. And part because I think that will help us understand how American wars end. Uh, one of the things that surprised me in doing the research is how much civilians did not like the soldiers. I mean, didn't they really were suspicious of veterans because they'd been in the army and the army was one of those things that took away your liberties. Uh, you know, this is an American, you know, as a historian, right? I, I was aware of how conflicted the Vietnam War ended, but I thought that was an anomaly. It turns out that's probably more the norm than anybody would really like to think. Uh, so that gives us some perspective on other wars, but also can help us to understand uh, our wars that are, are hopefully winding down today and, and what to do with ourselves uh, as that happens. Is there anything else that you would like to add about your topic? Well, I'm uh, really excited to be working on it. Uh, so it's a book that um, uh, I think will be a great read. It has wonderful characters in it. It's a great story. Uh, hoping to finish at the end of next year, possibly uh, for publication 2019. So start saving your pennies now, and you can be ready possibly for Christmas 2019 if you want to start planning that that far ahead. Well, that sounds great. I look forward to reading it, and I thank you for your time and talking with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Dr. David Head, historian, author, and lecturer of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Kayla Campana. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations.